0: Hey, everyone, we're gonna kick off the show in just a second. But two quick things firstly that you should know about. We have a live podcast at WNYC's Studio Space in Lower Manhattan on September 19th. It's in partnership with Clean Energy Connections. We've done this for three years now. And it's our favorite venue by far. We're going to have networking a grab bag of special segments, audience q&a and some libations. Get your tickets now and come celebrate climate week with us. This show has sold out every time. So go to cleanecnyc.org for more details. That's cleanecnyc.org for more details. We're going to have that link in the show notes as well. The following week, GTM is back in New York City, in Brooklyn actually, for our New York Rev Future Conference on September 26th and 27th. This is the premier event focused on the most ambitious electricity market reform in history. Pretty much every key player you can imagine in the New York market is going to be there. Energy Gang listeners, as always, you get 15% off on checkout. You are our devoted listeners, and you get rewarded for that. So go to greentechmedia.com slash events and use the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, for a 15% discount to the New York Rev Future Conference. Finally, a big thank you to Mission Solar Energy, our dedicated sponsor. We're so glad to have their support which helps us bring you this podcast every week. Mission Solar is a module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. It's got a 260 megawatt facility right here in the U.S., in Texas. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules, every one of which is made domestically right here in the U.S., offer world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. Visit Mission Solar at the upcoming Solar Power International Conference at booth 3975. SPI is coming right up in Las Vegas in September, booth 3975, where you can find out more about Mission Solar's high-power modules. And if you're not going to be there, just go to their website, missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, lessons from Harvey. After delivering a week of punishing rains, jaw-dropping floods, and unprecedented damage around Houston, Texas, Hurricane Harvey, now a weakening tropical storm, is moving eastward. And while Texans start the painful process of rebuilding their lives, many are asking, could anything have been done to lessen the impact? We're gonna look at the storm through the lens of climate, urban planning, and federal policy. All three of those factors created the perfect storm for maximum damage. Then a DOE grid study redux. will offer up some thoughts on the final version of that contentious grid reliability report that you've heard so much about. Then China's solar frenzy continues. Wasn't it supposed to be a slow year in 2017? Catherine's a partner with 38 North Solutions. She's back from vacation, rested for a nutty fall of politics. You were on the Hill already yesterday. What's on the front burner on Capitol Hill?
1: Yeah, they have a lot to do in September to keep the government open, to try to get disaster relief to the hurricane victims, and then also uh, to raise the debt ceiling so that we can pay our bills.
0: Is this tax reform thing really going to (laughs) happen?
1: Well, I think reform may not be the word. There may be a tax in the word, but probably not real reform.
0: And that laugh per usual in the background is Jigger Shaw. The president of Generate Capital. It was his birthday yesterday, so he's in a good mood. Yes, a little, he seemed a little wiser.
2: Oh God, it's like I'm wise enough to know that this Congress can't find its way out of the like halls of Congress to even find that health care bill. Well, uh, it keeps
0: Catherine employed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have a guest this week. It's Marianne Lavelle, a reporter with Inside Climate News who is also based in Washington. She's a veteran environment science and law reporter who's won numerous awards for investigative journalism. She's been at National Geographic, US News and World Report, and the National Law Journal. And now she's joining us to talk about Hurricane Harvey. Marianne, welcome.
3: Thanks, thanks. Glad to be here. So the Inside
0: Climate Newsroom is a little bit more geared toward reflective or investigative writing. I know that you're going to deploy some staff there after the floods recede to talk about the long-term consequences. How is your newsroom thinking about how to cover Harvey right now?
3: Yeah, that, that's a really good question because we've been grappling with it. I, I mean, this is not the time to say, we told you so. <laughs> um, you you have this hurricane that it, it, just by virtue of how Extreme it is, and how clear the connection is with the warming of the planet we're seeing, and the uh, heavier precipitation events. It, it just is a classic case where, in many ways, the the climate change that we've seen has made this much worse. We we want to look forward and see, and, and really take a look at how does this change. Uh, not only the landscape in Texas, but the landscape of the politics over energy and climate.
0: And we are only beginning to touch on that question. That probably helps us frame today's conversation on this disaster. And I do agree with you, I don't want to make this an we told you so type conversation, but inevitably, we're going to be talking about the climate consequences, um, and obviously a decent amount of policy and politics today. So before we have that conversation, there are a lot of relief organizations that you can donate to in order to help the hundreds of thousands of people impacted by the storm. If you're considering donating to a charity that's less well-known, make sure to look it up to the, at the Better Business Bureau or Charity Watch. They're going to be able to tell you if it's a scam or if your money will be spent efficiently. And also just a quick special shout out to our colleagues at Wood Mackenzie, which is our parent company. A lot of them are in te- Houston, Texas, and we're wishing them well along with everyone else in Houston So when an event like this happens, inevitably, there's a lot of shock and surprise. It's hard not to be shocked when you see that level of flooding. And the price tag is just going to be enormous. We're we're still figuring out what that tally is. But we've known for a long time that this type of scenario could be coming for a city like Houston. And, And this story is not just about a storm. It never is, right? It's partly about the way Houston was designed, um, as one of the fastest growing cities in the country, it doesn't have zoning laws, and it put in place the conditions to make flooding worse. Meanwhile, federal policy from climate science to flood insurance to disaster relief to budgets for weather prediction, it's, it's all kind of in tatters, and we're going to explore these factors. So, Marianne, let's start in Washington, and I want to hear from you after this, Catherine. What are some of the hard decisions right now that lawmakers are facing in the aftermath of the storm?
3: Uh, yeah, you're right. And, and I also have to say here that y- you have to talk about these issues. I think you may have heard EPA's uh, administrator Scott Pruitt this week saying, well, this is not the time to talk about cause and effect uh, sort of uh, discussion, but then when you look at what Congress has to look at ahead, it, it just would be irresponsible for us not to talk about the warming world that we're we're living in and and what can we do about it for for example um the budget that really they they're working with a deadline of the end of September or we we're facing a government shutdown the budget that they've been handed by the white house has all of these cuts to things like um, modeling to make uh, weather and storm forecasts more accurate, it has a giant cut to climate science and research and um, it, and to uh, really disaster response and emergency planning. So I think it, it, there's going to be ha- have to be a grappling with with all of these sort of spending priorities. The flood insurance uh, program, which Catherine mentioned, it's already in in debt about twenty five billion dollars, and it's due to Hurricane Katrina in two thousand five, Superstorm Sandy in twenty twelve, and we we had severe flooding all over the country last year. We're going to continue to see these events. Are we going to continue to pay for them? And are we going to continue to rebuild and encourage rebuilding in the places that are more prone to uh, flooding in the future? Uh, these are these are things Congress is going to have to deal with just in the very few weeks ahead.
0: So in other words, basically everything. <laughs> yes. Uh, Catherine, do you want to chime in on any of those priorities? You did mention the the flood insurance program, which is just a complete mess right now. And in fact, I was aware of problems and how expensive and how much in debt the program was, but I didn't realize how how messy things were. So many folks who are, making claims over and over and over against their houses in the same flood prone areas. You know, these severe repetitive loss properties. There are some houses, for example, that are worth, you know, a hundred thousand dollars or less that have taken on a million dollars or so in claims. We've been talking about this since nineteen ninety eight, when both progressives and financial conservatives came out and said that that this flood insurance program was in trouble and it was going to start costing a lot of money. And that was really before we understood the true consequences of climate change. Um, do, Do you want to talk about how Congress is going to start grappling with that?
1: Yeah. So I can't speak to the flood insurance program. I think what's going to probably end up happening is that they're going to do a short term bill to keep the government open and funded. And in that, Bill, they're going to include a tranche of funding for the hurricane recovery efforts. FEMA has about $1.3 billion in in the bank now to use for recovery, but they're going to designate some to Harvey. And um, that'll just be the first tranche to start on some of the rebuilding. There are a few things structurally that we have to be careful about. One is that President Trump just reversed this federal flood risk management standard, which basically said government funds um, have to account for climate change in, in the way they're issued um, in certain areas. And he wanted to turn that back. I'm hoping that this kind of causes them to rethink that. I'm hoping that when they do finalize a budget that you know, all of these budgets, whether it's FEMA or HUD for rebuilding or the National Weather Service or NOAA for coastal preparation, that all of those are considered as they start thinking about what the, what continual impacts our climate's going to have. And it may not, Change whether or not storms happen, but it will change the shape of those storms, as marianne said it'll it'll cause them to be more rapidly intensifying and more rain and longer lasting and have more damage to life and property so all of those have to those thoughts have to kind of go into how are we doing relief um, I know with sandy. I worked really hard to try to get language in to the Stafford act, which funds FEMA to try to ensure that when infrastructure is rebuilt, especially electric infrastructure, that we build it back more in a more resilient way. So I think that's something they're really going to have to talk about as they think through the next tranches of funding is, you know, how are we going to rebuild in a way that allows, um, the area to come to be more sustainable and more resilient, which is one of the goals of the administration. So, um, with Sandy, they basically gave them a bunch of money to rebuild. They have since then done a little bit of tweaking to the Stafford Act. But I think that this is something that with the intensities of these storms and with areas that weren't considered floodplains all of a sudden being susceptible that we need to rethink
2: that. It just seems odd to me that you're actually going to see anyone being thoughtful about this stuff. I mean, you know, when you looked at Hurricane Sandy, you know, New York State, actually, I thought, you know, was really thoughtful about it. And in New Jersey, Chris Christie was like, build your house exactly where it went down. We don't care. Yeah, so, but re-
1: New Jersey started an energy resilience bank. So they are funding energy storage, CHP projects to um, to build into water treatment plants and hospitals and other um, critical infrastructure. So they are, en- en- New Jersey has been moving forward on resilience. That's
2: not, but that doesn't count, right? I mean, like, that's exactly what everyone always does. They say, Well, you know, we'd love to put a resiliency fund together and fund innovation because who hates innovation, right? The real problem with Houston is that they took all of this land, which was basically not supposed to be built upon, and then had no standards associated with stormwater management. And so they've just paved paradise and put up a parking lot. And so there's no place for the water to go. Now, when you have 50 inches of rain, I'm not sure any stormwater management plan would have survived um, that much rain. But you know, like what we need to see in New Jersey or Houston or these other places is a recognition that this is going to get worse, not better, and that people need to actually not live in places where uh, uh, flooding is going to occur because it's going to keep coming back. I mean, there's there's homes now in Houston as well as in places like in Mississippi where the homes were worth a hundred thousand dollars and they've received seven hundred thousand dollars of federal money already in the last fifteen years. Um, And that those kinds of policy decisions are not being made by New Jersey.
0: Couldn't you say the same thing about Manhattan?
2: No, I think Manhattan's on granite, right? They're not on limestone like New Jersey is and sorry, like Miami and some of these other places are. And so Manhattan's a little bit different. But when you look at the way that they're rebuilding Rockaway or Staten Island or the places, they absolutely did say they had to jack the homes up, you know, 15 feet. They've got to do a lot of these changes uh, so that when flooding comes back, which it will, um, they don't have total losses again.
1: So Marianne, I have two questions um, about how we go about that, given that this has happened in Texas. One is on the political side. So 24 representatives uh, in Congress from Texas and both senators voted against Sandy relief funding when that bill was up.
3: Right. Um, Every Republican in the delegation, except for one um, representative, Colberson from Houston, yes. voted against Sandy funding.
1: So will this sort of get them, um, their eyes opened a little bit? That's my, my first question. I'm sure it will. they will be open to having funding you know, delivered to them, but will it also help them think longer term? Um, but the other thing is so much of the economy in Houston and in these cities has been built on citing resources, chemical plants, oil plants, or their refineries, the whole petrochemical industry is there and has and is going to continue to call to to wreak havoc because of the storm so how do we get them to pay attention in a way that's not political and that really does um, allow us to think smarter about where we cite resources
3: yes and and I think this is one of the things that we're going to be writing about uh, uh, Stephen asked how are you going to cover this this is the question we're going to be asking of of these, uh, these members of Congress, because I-, I think that they are going to see a real split <laughs> between what their constituents want and what the industry that they've been uh, really serving ha- has a- a wants. Uh, and you wonder if we are going to get to the point where there's a political price to be paid for the kind of denial uh, we have from uh, some of the members of Congress in Texas, and it's they they are in leadership roles in the effort to roll back funding for climate science and to really root out any uh, regulations on on the industry. Uh, again, it's it's a really hard issue. I, I have to wonder if. At some point <laughs> we are w- when we're dealing with these budget issues, if the issue of putting a price on carbon is going to become more politically viable there there is this small but not insignificant climate solutions caucus, which is uh by by you know by design an equal number of Republicans and Democrats who really are are joining, you know, a lot of them are coastal uh, Republicans from Florida, for instance, and they're really saying something must be done. Will these climate events, as well as the budget problems that we're having, will they, they come together and be some impetus for us looking finally at a price on carbon?
0: I'm seeing the same thing. I admire your optimism, but I don't know that these caucuses are enough to move the needle when it comes to the the kind of financial pressure that many Republicans are under to not talk about climate change.
2: Well, it's you know it's what happens with the system we have today. I think that a lot of the challenges in our system are, you know, go back to how campaigns are financed, et cetera. I I, I do want to. Focus back on Harvey, though, for a second. I mean, I, I do think that there are a lot of intermingled issues here. I mean, I don't think any of us are claiming that Harvey was caused by climate change. And I think it's important to note that, like, climate change, you know, makes waters warmer and may, like, make things worse than they would have otherwise been. But, I mean, 50 inches of rain is 50 inches of rain, right? And whether it was 42 inches of rain or 50 inches of rain, it still would have hurt Houston, I think the other piece with Houston is that, you know, Houston is the most diverse city in the country um, and has had extraordinary mayors that have run those cities for the last three or four terms. Um, It's a very democratic city. Um, And even in this sort of framework, they've also made really bad choices. And so, like, my uncles have lived in Houston for years and my parents were down visiting them during the hurricane. um, They're, thank God, all safe. But I think, um, you know, like one of my uncle's homes hasn't gone up in value since 1979 because they have no zoning regulations in Houston and you can always just build five miles farther out and, and build another house. And so therefore there's no problem with housing supply, which in some ways is good because housing is very affordable in Houston. But in the case of Hurricane Harvey, it's really bad. And these all happen under democratic administrations. Um, So I don't think the Democrat Republican framework is useful. I think that mayors um, make mistakes all the time. And they make those mistakes in Philadelphia with their stormwater problems. And they make mistakes in DC with their stormwater problems. The more interesting,
0: well, perhaps not interesting, but the more urgent issue is what you do in these flood prone areas. What kind of conversation do you have around getting people to move for climate and economic reasons. It always this is, you know, comes we're talking back about to getting issue. people to move. It, it does. Regular listeners will know that we have this debate almost every show about how much people should be moving around this country for both economic and now climate reasons. Um, but when it comes to forcing people to move from their homes... This is an incredibly painful conversation and I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I have the answers, but there are some policy levers that you can use to try to deal with the situation. So obviously the flood insurance program on the federal level is a financial disaster. And they're they're help well they're 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 issuing claims to folks who are living in FEMA uh, flood areas that are taking claims over and over and over again. Um, you can on the local level say we're we're going to actually develop some zoning laws and not just let developers dictate where you can build and keep, continue to fill in these uh, important ecosystems that help deal with flooding like this, and then you can say on the federal level, that we're not going to support infrastructure unless it takes into account these severe flooding consequences or climate change. And this is where we saw the Trump administration roll back the Obama-era executive order to take into account climate change. So there are some policy levers that you can start pulling to deal with this but situation. Stephen,
2: the Obama administration was no better than the Trump administration. I mean, to suggest that they did anything to solve the flood insurance problem is ridiculous. I'm well, no, top I, d- of that, I didn't
0: suggest that. No, I'm not saying the politics are easy. I'm saying that these are the tools the... that we have in front of us. Right. I'm and guess just what? saying, isn't
1: it about the money? Okay, so the the wealth from Houston is from the petrochemical industry for the most part. Those the refineries are shut down right now. So how do we get in planning and building and rebuilding? The wealth is going to be the driver. So the bond raiders, the banks, aren't those going to be the drivers here? Not deciding whether or not to get somebody a bus ticket out of town.
2: Sure, but the Im- the impact of that falls on the poorest people. I mean, the bottom line is, is that, you know, generally speaking, outside of Joel Osteen's home there in Houston, um, most of, you know, the poor people live in um, places that have environmental justice issues, flooding issues, other places, because those are the places where you know, folks um, who have a lot of money don't generally live. And so then the question becomes when the bond rating agencies and the mortgage industry starts redlining districts where poor people live and say, we're not going to provide mortgages there anymore. We're not going to provide flood insurance there anymore, etc. Then the Democrats, you know, come in and say, that's not fair and we're going to pass laws to make sure that mortgage companies can't redline districts. And then you end up with being in the same situation. I just wanted to highlight that the Republicans and Democrats both have the same problem for different reasons. And that's why the problem never gets fixed. It's not because Republicans don't believe in climate change. It's because Democrats also don't want to make the tough decisions here. Let's talk about the impact to energy infrastructure.
0: Of course, the Gulf Coast is home to a large portion of the oil and gas rigs here in the United States. I think one third of refining capacity is based on the Gulf Coast coast. We saw a chemical facility undergo some serious problems this morning, and there's warnings that it's going to catch fire. We have early notifications that some uh, chemical holding facilities have started to leak. What, Marianne, are you seeing in terms of damage to energy infrastructure? And will it get worse? And is that something that you're following closely?
3: I think we're going to find out. that it's it's worse because they really have not been able to fully assess what's uh, what what has ha- happened there there's something like 800 petrochemical and other kinds of industrial uh parcels along that Houston ship channel and about 3400 uh above ground storage tanks we we know of a few that have been damaged and have toppled. And uh the other thing is those refineries uh kind of spew pollution both when they do their shutdowns and when they do their startups. So uh we we haven't really begun to have a full assessment of of the pollution uh impact there. Um the other impact is going to be economic, and that is because especially the East Coast gets uh, a large percentage of its petroleum products uh, gasoline etc from the Gulf Coast through uh, through pipeline pipeline that is shut down right now uh, it's pretty clear in the futures markets that uh, we're, we're going to see higher gasoline prices and it's it's, it's almost a ritual that I've covered over and over again after hurricanes and storms. Uh, the people are, are uh, complain that there's gas price gouging. This is, again, the Democrats get in on this as well. Uh, almost always the Federal Trade Commission does an investigation and says, well, you know, when you have a supply disruption and you depend on oil, the prices are <laughs> going to are going to shoot up, and uh, it's the it's one of the other prices we pay for our dependence on uh, on these commodities.
0: Just one more factor that is beginning to play out, and we will know the consequences more over the coming weeks as it actually starts to spread around the country. I I, I do want to talk about the climate context here. And Jigger's is right. We're not saying. Um, this storm was caused by climate change. And of course, journalists and other communicators are very careful to talk about the factors that contribute to making these storms more likely and stronger. Um, and, and and that's really the, the way to talk about this. How are you thinking about discussing this in the climate context? What are climate scientists saying to you? And is there more urgency from the scientists that you're talking to? Uh
3: that's a really good question, uh, Stephen. I've been talking to climate scientists all uh, this week and last week as the storm it became clear this storm was was going to hit Houston. Um, I, I don't hear more urgency among the scientists because they have been very urgent, um, f- you know, for as long as that I've been talking already. to them. <laughs> what, what I am struck by, as I'm always struck by when I talk to them, uh, that you you just do not hear uh the the they, they are so often accused of being alarmists they are so cautious about how they characterize this uh they say you know this heavy rainfall it, it's not all because of warming of the climate it's also because of this feature of the storm it's stalled out and we we don't know if that's it, that, that could be pure luck because of the other, other things that were happening in the atmosphere. We don't know if that is due to climate change or not. And uh, the, the one thing that they say, and you can look at the last national climate assessment, is that when you have these storms, there, there's going to be more moisture available to them with the climate change that we've seen. And uh, the science is very clear on that. The science is not clear on the question that everyone seems to ask, which is, will we have more hurricanes or will we have fewer hurricanes? Um, Hurricanes, the formation of them is, is, is just, there's so many factors at work, even, Uh, As one scientist pointed out to me, even how much soot and dust there is in the atmosphere can have an impact. And of course, wind shear, um, and there are just so many factors. But what we know is that heavy rainfall is is uh, something that we're going to be seeing more of. I I think that there are just policy questions that we have to address. Because we build infrastructure for these extremes. And are the extremes we're seeing worse than what we've seen in the past?
0: And the increased precipitation frequency and ferocity has been well documented in this area and around the Midwest and areas around the country. So this is a, a well documented phenomenon. And of course, as you mentioned in your story, the you know the sea level is rising. Uh, around the country and in the Gulf Coast. The waters in the Gulf of Mexico are warmer than average. So there are a lot of factors here that are contributing to the intensity of the storm that scientists say are are caused by climate change.
1: Well, it also sounds like the intensification is so much more rapid, and so there's less time to prepare. And folks don't prepare who don't think that they're in the danger zone, and yet all of a sudden they are in the danger zone. So I think there will be also some policy need, whether it's on the local, state, or federal level, to try to get people to think about how to prepare better.
3: And there, there's even, I mean, there has been an effort in the uh, the agencies that deal with weather prediction to try to um, improve the modeling so that we have a better warning of these fast developing storms.
0: You know, I was not surprised but still stunned to see the president on twitter sort of bragging about how big this storm was um par for the course of course um and and i i'm asking this question mostly to see if i can get a a, a jigger riled up but i'm you know it's it's kind of a question that might come from an era where we had a more ordinary presidency but I wonder if there are any political consequences to Trump proposing these cuts to climate measures if this storm does elevate the conversation around climate change in the medium term in politics. Are there any political consequences? Uh, am I, I mean, my answer is no, probably not. There are never any political consequences for this administration, but I think a question we should be asking, regardless, Jigger. Do you want to respond to that? Like, is is there any sort of reaction among the public or other political leaders to, you know, Trump's position on climate? Assuming we this broadens the climate discussion.
2: No, because there, I mean, but there's no there's no um, political consequences for Obama's position on climate, right? I mean, Obama was one of the folks who was most pro-drilling like that we've ever had in the White House, right? Ultimately, when you think about. Um, you know what middle class working class folks care about which determine this election they care about jobs and for a lot of them they believe that having no regulations not worrying about climate etc is going to make their bosses you know invest more money into things that give them a job right and so like i don't think that they are going to vote with us on climate change i think the climate change folks are going to have to you know, be driven by military considerations, security considerations, other considerations that are not something that speaks to, you know, the middle class, working class of this country.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't think this conversation is going to be about climate at all. The political conversation is going to be about infrastructure. And I think that Congress is going to hand um, the president an infrastructure bill, which is about hurricane relief. And that infrastructure bill is going to create jobs because they're gonna need people down there to help them. So I don't think that this elevates this to the um, to a climate conversation.
3: What I'd like to add is uh, by saying how big this storm is, uh, I don't think in any way the president is saying, well, we're seeing bigger storms. He's, ta- he's uh, framing this as if it's an anomaly no one could have predicted it. No one will we never had a storm like this. We'll never have one like it again. that That is the subtext uh, for what he's talking about. And uh, it, it, by the way, I have to respond somewhat to what Jigger said on o- Obama. I, I mean, there's there's no question that, that we saw the oil and gas boom on, under the Obama administration. But read Inside Climate News. We we did a piece on the Obama legacy and the the um, kind of tragedy of uh, for for an administration at the end that really did. Tried to do some things on climate change. It was far too late, and uh, (laughs) too uh, you know, just just so much lost at the beginning. You have to when they actually had
2: both houses of Congress, and they could have done something about it
3: in the in the first two years of his. Also, he's dealing with the economic collapse as well. That is is a real a real tragedy of, uh, of uh, his administration, for sure.
0: And, and I'll go even further. I mean, Jigger, come on, to suggest that the Trump administration and the Obama administration are even in the same league on this issue is just completely absurd.
2: I'm not suggesting that their rhetoric is in the same place. I just, we've had this conversation before. I am an action-oriented person. And what I'm trying to figure out is exactly like which actions each administration took and did they actually use the political wins that they had in front of them and the currency that they had to forward our issues. And the answer is the Obama administration did not try to regulate methane until the very end of their administration. They did not use the BP oil spill as a way to actually regulate the oil industry. And in fact, no pieces of legislation passed the Senate during the BP oil spill when both houses of Congress were owned by the Democrats. And so I just am tired of folks saying, well, we, he passed an executive order. Executive April, Orders are just toilet paper.
3: <laughs> you know, there's there really a, a whole lot of regulations that he, he did get written. They're the ones that the Obama that the Trump administration is now trying to undo not all, not all that successfully in not completely successfully in the courts including methane and uh, methane was something they began like midway through his administration it took that long to to get it to the point they got it at the at the end of his administration i i i I do agree that they didn't do enough, but uh you you can't equate where they they were heading with where uh the Trump administration is heading, which is just complete reverse uh on on these these issues
1: yeah and execu- executive orders while not statute, they all get an administration and all the agencies paddling in the same direction. So at least it gets everybody embedding the same policy throughout every agency, and that's why they're important. It's leadership through example.
0: So last question, I want to go around the horn here. What is one positive development that you predict will come out of this storm, whether it be public, the public conversation or an actual policy development? Marianne, what are you keeping your eyes on, and do you have any predictions about what may result? I
3: really am keeping my eyes on the debate next month over the national flood insurance program. Actually, September this this month, uh, because it expires at the end of September. It just so happens Congress has to do something about it. There has to be a discussion whether if whether it's only the issue of raising premiums which is which has been just so unpopular uh they they have to grapple with uh, with what to do with this program that is so in debt and that has been so problematic and we we have to mention that so many of those worst uh, repetitive loss properties uh that you talked about we're in Houston, and so it really is very relevant discussion um, and important one for the future as well.
0: We've been talking about this for twenty years now. Maybe we'll get some reform efforts underway, which will, you know, I think, force a bigger conversation about the way we're supporting development in these communities. A very painful conversation, I know, but one that
2: we're going to really need to start having. Jigger, what about you? Well, I'm really looking to stormwater management. It's just been shocking to me how little stormwater management we do in this country. We've just, you know, put impermeable surfaces down everywhere from roads to sidewalks to parking lots and haven't realized that, you know, like water is a very destructive force. It's the same force that created the Grand Canyon. And you've got to figure out how to manage water effectively. Otherwise, You just can't avoid these kinds of things occurring in the future. And so um, I'm hoping that a lot of these actions that EPA has taken over the last eight years, but also this hurricane will actually cause people to finally care about stormwater management.
1: Catherine, final thoughts? Yeah, so I've been really impressed watching everybody help each other in Texas. And I know that happens everywhere where there's a disaster, people pitch in and help each other. Um, Texas does have a really strong ecosystem of engineers and entrepreneurs and really smart people who I think are going to start investing more in resilience, microgrids, energy storage, um, trying to look differently at the way we deploy innovation. The, there's a microgrid outside of Dallas, and they said, you know, that was chugging along, no problem. Dallas wasn't hit at all, but, you know, let's, let's get more of those out there, and maybe we can, uh, when they rebuild in Houston, start putting more there.
0: And that's what we're following as well. Our grid reporter, Jeff St. John, is tracking um, distributed energy projects, mostly microgrids, in, um, in Texas to figure out how they rode through the storm. So we'll have a story coming out on that. Well, Marianne Lavelle joined us from Washington. She's a reporter with Inside Climate News. She's a veteran reporter who's covered environmental issues, science, and legal issues. We really appreciate you joining us and giving us the lay of the land um, in, in Washington and in Texas, what we should be looking out for. Thanks, Marianne.
3: Thank you, Stephen.
0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a U.S.-based solar module manufacturer. America's booming solar industry, it's just getting bigger and bigger. It's over 260,000 people, it's its approaching 300,000 people, and Mission Solar is a very proud employer. The company's 260-megawatt solar manufacturing facility supports local U.S. production, engineering, and office jobs in San Antonio, Texas, directly contributing to that burgeoning clean energy economy here in America. Mission Solar's Texas-based location makes it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, keeping your projects moving and on schedule. And Mission Solar's in-house research and development laboratory keeps the company innovating and producing the highest quality modules possible. Mission Solar's team's going to be at Solar Power International in Las Vegas from September 10th through the 13th. Come meet them. Say hello. Check out the products. Learn about what they're up to. They're going to be at booth 3975. That's 3975. And if you're not at the event, go check out their modules online, missionsolar.com. Hey, thanks, Mission, for supporting this show. Our next subject is probably one of the most important U.S. political stories in energy right now, But i got to say, I'm pretty fatigued by it, only because we've covered it so extensively and we've talked about it on this podcast and our other podcast, The Interchange. The story is, of course, that major DOE grid study requested by Energy Secretary Rick Perry. Back in April, he asked for a 60-day review of whether wind and solar are threatening baseload power plants and therefore threatening the health of the grid. It immediately became political, and for four months, a wide range of groups speculated and issued pre on the report. They feared it would be a way for the administration to craft policies to prop up coal, either implicitly or explicitly. And that, implicitly are, that implicit argument is something that people are debating right now. But the, the report is out, and it's very good. It's super wonky. It's not the political document that a lot of people worried about. And the reason we're talking about this so much is that it it is an agenda setting document for Rick Perry's energy department, how they execute on it is still sort of up for grabs, we don't really know, but it is a defining document for grid policy within Rick Perry's DOE. Catherine, very briefly, what did it conclude?
1: Yeah, so what it did not do was say that wind and solar tax credits have caused coal plants to shut down. (laughs) Um, What it really did was give us a snapshot based on all the information that they already have at DOE, the EIA data and all the information that their various and sundry research offices have, kind of a compilation of what is the... What is in existence now? What is sort of the state of play? And so they really think that wholesale markets should be reformed, that um, essential reliability services should be better valued, that there should be a better definition for bulk power system resilience. Um, Everything is very geared toward reliability and resilience. and then they also do talk about um, some infrastructure. It's it's very much about hydro nukes and coal, not so much about um, renewables. I think while it didn't blame renewables, it certainly did not talk much about how renewables and new technology, consumer engagement, blockchain, all these ways in which our grid is changing much, much faster than regulation can keep up with. That was not part of this. And so this was not future looking as in, you know, how do we really think about, you know, what is our system going to look like in the future? They did talk about flexibility, but I think, you know, this baseload issue is going to be supplanted eventually by flexibility rather than having that be an either or decision. So um, I think it was a snapshot of where we are now. I don't know that it's going to be one of those things that people pick up and take as a policy document. I do think they they are even positioning this as a start of a conversation. I think what we have to make sure of is that as policy is developed, that we make sure that we don't hem ourselves in by being constrained in the way we come up with definitions for reliability and resilience and services that resources can bring to the grid.
0: Well, this week we released an interview with Travis Fisher, who is the senior DOE official who coordinated the study. Uh, Shale Khan and I interviewed him on Monday, and we talked to him for, you know, like an hour and 45 minutes or so, and we cut it down to a 72-minute interview, and we walked through pretty much all the technical details of the report and talk about Travis himself and his Guiding philosophy. So there's, um, it's it's pretty long and it's very wonky. I recommend it for anyone who really wants to explore the thinking behind the report and the recommendations themselves. But I think it'll be important for us to just kind of walk through the framing here. Jigger, did you want to respond to what we talked about in there? Did anything jump out from that interview that either you disagreed with or
2: agreed with? Well, first of all, I wanted to just give you guys a shout out there. I thought it was a great interview. I thought you and Shale did a fantastic job of teasing out um, all the sort of details that with the report. So I thought it was a really great, insightful interview. I, look, I I think that this report was obviously influenced by the leak that occurred. Had it had the report not leaked, there's no way this report would have came out this way. I think that leaves the administration in a pickle because they're sort of like, now we kind of have to do things the right way. And now like, and then when you think about technology, I think Travis was very clear on the podcast that he's not looking at technology, that he basically wants to look at the current proposals that are being looked at by the RTOs, which are all backward looking. Like When you think about the new technologies that are coming out, in this country right now, um, a lot of them have not yet been sort of fully embraced by regulators in the RTO. And so I don't think DOE through this report is signaling that they're going to actually be leading on, for instance, non-wires alternatives. I mean, one of the things that you guys talked about was putting a floor price on LMP prices um, as per you know PJM's recommendation. That has got to be the worst idea I've heard in a very long time. I mean, the number one beneficiary of that would be the wind and solar industry. I honestly don't understand what they're thinking. That would accelerate the demise of the existing power plants that they want to save.
1: And it's not exactly free market either.
2: Right. I mean, it's just like literally we're in bizarro world where the Republicans who want to deregulate want to basically put their thumb on the scale for the technologies they care about. And the, the, the folks in the clean energy industry are trying desperately to phase out their tax credits, et cetera, to be able to create a level playing field. And everyone's like, uh, we'd like to make it more on level to help the coal industry get subsidies so that they can actually stay in business. I mean, it's, we're we're living in a weird world right yeah. now.
0: A lot to unpack there. So uh, Travis is not here to defend himself. Go listen to that interview. Um, if he were here, he'd probably say no. Well, actually, he said this in the interview exactly. We're not putting our thumb on the scale. We're basically taking our thumb off the scale for wind and solar in theory, and that feels like we're putting the thumb on the scale for another technology. So you know, he argues that like this is a technology neutral policy that could potentially help nuclear and coal, but also might help renewables in the process as well. And so his argument against you would would be, we're not putting our thumb on the scale for anything, it's just that we're taking it off and it feels like we might be Waiting, other technologies in its place.
1: Yeah, so if you really want to take the thumb off of the scale for everybody, then you also need to roll back everything that nuclear and coal and all the other fossil guys get. Because, you know, wind and solar are not the only, are, are not the only uh, subsidized you know, subsidized industries out there. Um, and I would say over time, we can have a long, much longer conversation about subsidies at some point. But when he said this is coal neutral, That was when he lost me because... Coal is not neutral. There is a cost to coal. And maybe you can ignore the fact that there are costs that are associated with coal and that you choose not to count as a value. That doesn't mean they don't exist. And so, you know, what the Obama administration did was really not only did they try to comply with the law, the Clean Air Act said you need to have some enforcement on CO2 emissions and other emissions that are harmful to human health because that is something that the federal government is supposed to do. So he was on a path the president obama was on a path to try to comply with the law which this administration is saying and travis too saying that they came with an agenda well the agenda was to comply with the law and public safety so travis and his team also have an agenda and that's just something we need to recognize is you know whether or not they're going to be able to get that through and whether or not you decide that i have a coal neutral policy coal is not neutral in what it costs human health and the public
0: Yeah, I think that's really important to take into consideration. And I have a couple more reflections after re-listening to the interview and taking into account feedback. So we did ask about climate change a couple of times, but we definitely should have been stronger there, because this effort takes on a very different form if you factor in climate change. And we thoroughly get into the weeds with Travis on all sorts of stuff. And I do wish I had been a little bit more pushy on why climate change needs to be factored into an analysis like this, because the framing, as you just described it very well, Catherine, completely changes. And I, and I did mention that, but I don't feel like I followed up enough on that. I, I thought
2: you did a great job, Stephen. I listened to that podcast. I thought you pushed him several times, but you were pushing a brick wall. I don't think you would have gotten anywhere on the climate side. So I think you guys did a great job. I Look, I I, I agree with what Catherine said. I mean, I, I certainly believe very strongly that coal kills people and the faster we can shut down coal plants, the the, the better. So I, I'm completely with you on that, Catherine. I, I just think that like what's going on right now is no matter what he does, right, he's just I don't know that he fully understands that we are going to destroy all of the wholesale markets in the country under his administration's reign. And they need to study the crap out of how to fix the wholesale markets faster than we destroy them. I mean, when you've got a five-year extension of the wind PTC and solar ITC as it phases down, we are going to build gigawatts of wind and solar over the next five years. And they all have these corporate PPAs and this and that and whatever, whatever. And we are awash in power assets in this country. We have way more power assets than we need to run our grid. And we have zero net marginal cost, which means that like, we are going to put natural gas turbines in bankruptcy, coal plants in bankruptcy, nuclear plants in bankruptcy, and they have no idea what they're going to do when that happens. But I think that backs up Travis's fear, right? I mean, I don't think he
0: would disagree with what you're saying. Um, and he might be constrained, but I'm just trying to like see if I can try to channel what he might say. You know, he is constrained by this collaborative process within DOE. He's constrained by what Secretary Perry asked him to do. I mean, he's not the one who came up with these assumptions. Secretary Perry is the one who set these guidelines for him. So there's only so much he can do to study that. But, I mean, I I think he'd probably be on the same page when you look at the potential uh, market destruction that we're going to see. But this is a problem generally with government reports. I mean, you put so much effort into this, 120 days. And then you try to build on this collaborative effort. But the report is going to be obsolete in months or a half a year. Oh, look, I I agree with you. This is not a problem with this report. It's like a problem with government reports generally.
2: Yeah, and I would say the same about Obama administration reports. So I don't think this is – I was more commenting about Travis's interview with you guys. It did not feel like he was clear at all about what the problems were and what DOE was going to study – to help solve
1: yeah one of the things you talked about this missing money problem and how there, um how there's a lot of um you know out of market action from states that's causing some of these revenue issues and and policies that are um that are deploying the the resources that are more cost effective and having you know old plants not be able to clear the market that's not going to change like the states are not going to change he's he has no control over whether that can be changed in the states.
0: Right. And But Jigger, he was very clear in the interview in saying, okay, if we don't do something, then we're just going to be building wind, solar, and natural gas in this country, and that there is some kind of cost to that, whatever that cost is. So he did clearly define that, that Right, but he that was future. wrong about that. Well, why is that I mean, wrong? I mean, no one is wh- going to build a wh- nuclear plant or a coal plant. No, these but co- the these framing- plants are going to get pushed offline faster and faster. So like, what's wrong about right. that?
2: The framing that he used in your podcast was basically that got, that policy, namely I'm assuming he meant RPSs and and tax credits, were the reason why people were doing gas you know solar and wind. and that hasn't been true in three years that as GTM has reported many, many times, over fifty percent of all new solar and wind assets are not even about RPS compliance. and so so this is all market forces now But and they're the still taking into th-
0: account the tax credit.
2: Maybe, but like, but ultimately, like the challenge that he has is that DOE really has to study all of these problems. And frankly, the Obama administration didn't do a good job of this either. But I think the notion of being able to use inverters, for instance, to provide frequency regulation and voltage control, which Sempra just had this extraordinary pilot, which um, completed recently, which showed that with one battery that was only a megawatt in size, they were able to like, uh, do complex grid operations for an entire island. It was just shocking how awesome their results were. But like these technologies are basically, when I asked him, like, well, what what caused you to be able to do this? He said, the fact that sensors were ten cents a piece and and we're you finally using the internet. And I think even the Obama administration hasn't figured out how to do this. Grid operations haven't changed largely since the 1980s, and people are, I think, just. Like, they're not even able to set up the framework by which to have this conversation.
1: Yeah, uh, the report really did frame renewables in this very, what I call, old-fashioned way that did not take into consideration um, the flexibility and dispatchability that really exists now with new technology.
0: So as a document as a snapshot of what is happening in the grid and what has happened over the last few years. I think it's a very valuable document. I also got a lot of feedback from folks who said, wow, I've never heard from Travis before. I really thought that it was going to be someone who didn't understand the energy markets and like clearly travis is a very thoughtful guy he whether you agree or disagree with him like he knows energy markets he's been focusing on them for a long time and he's very clear about where he comes from so as an interview and as a document itself i think it's all pretty good the the i think where we're coming from probably as a group is that this is not forward looking at all you described this earlier, Catherine, and, and like, we're already ahead of where this document is. And so in months time, we're going to be even further ahead. And it discounts all the grid management technologies and cost declines that we're seeing in renewables that we're talking about in every episode of this podcast. Um, I will just say one more thing, because I've been kind of reflecting on it, Uh, if I could go back and revisit one other thing, I'd say that like, Travis, talks about the economic cost of of renewables and, and distributed energy. And, and you know, if you look back at over the last 15 years, there have been a lot of groups who've been screaming bloody murder about renewables driving up rates. And we can see in state after state that that has not happened. So I'm not going to downplay the complexity of the transition we're undergoing, nor discount some of the new costs. But the last decade of experience would tell us that cost, and so far unreliability claims have been overblown. But go listen to it. Send your feedback. I really liked it. I appreciated Travis's time. Um, it, it, it's a, just a great window into the process itself. One last thing I'll mention is that I heard from a couple folks within DOE afterward who did quibble with his assertion that the leak of the report didn't influence the process. And he said, no, we were collaborative, like some people, someone in the pro- process clearly was like stunned that the project that that the study was this clear. And there were a lot of fears that it wouldn't be this clear in its final form. And so they leaked it. And he said, this did not back us into a corner. I can say that straight up. And a couple of people who have reached out to me said, "Uh, I'm not so sure about that. But I personally can't confirm either way. It's kind of like a he said, she said, and it's a counterfactual. You don't really know. Fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah. And I would just say I was really glad that He said, um, you know, the the original timeline was 60 days to get the report out, which was really impossible. Um, And so it took them 120 days, which still was pretty quick. And that did give them extra time to go through and vet this with labs and their uh, other offices. And I think that was important to him. And it was important that it didn't sound too political because he got a lot of blowback when that first, um, when the first Perry memo came out.
0: Let's take a quick look at China's solar market now and and perhaps discuss where it fits into the broader global market. The country's already surpassed its 2020 target for solar. Amazing. And between January and July of this year, it put online 35 gigawatts of capacity, according to China's National Energy Administration. It's going to probably make up 40% or more of the global solar market this year. Jigger, you were itching to talk about China. What's on your mind related
2: to that market? Well, I think that, you know, we get really obsessed with the U.S. market. And I think according to GTM this year, the U.S. market won't even, you know, be 15 percent of the global market. Right. So I think when you think about um, global, you know, solar markets or wind markets or other markets, um, you know, these other markets are hugely important and have a huge influence on, you know, dynamics even in the U.S. market. Like, for instance, there's a lot of solar panels that are, Um, you know, not coming to the US market right now. And people are blaming the Cineva case. But in fact, when you talk to a lot of manufacturers of solar panels they are like, we kind of had political pressure from our masters in China to keep the product local. Um, And now I know why, because they had to build 11,000 megawatts of solar um, in a very short period of time. Um, It's just extraordinary to me how quickly this industry can scale and how quickly we can actually make a difference around climate emissions as well as, you know, replacing coal plants. And I think China shows us that. But wait,
0: aren't we talking about a similar problem that we saw in Germany? So one of the reasons why we saw such a surge in in installations this year is because China is rolling back its feed-in tariffs. It's it's slashing its feed-in tariffs. I think there was a June 30th cut, and everyone was pushing to get um, to qualify under the old feed-in tariff rates. So it's it's a similar situation that we saw in Germany and other European markets, in Spain and elsewhere, where people overpaid for solar. Sure, solar is cheaper, but isn't China just like pushing uh, artificially pushing a ton of solar that's and a, a lot of which isn't even connected
2: to the grid and serving people? China has a lot of problems and the United States has a lot of solutions that they're selling China around grid integration software and some of these other things like I was talking about with Sempra. But like, but I really, you know, am. it's not the same as Germany. Germany is a very small market, right? Germany is the size of California. And so when you think about how much solar Germany was installing at those high feed-in tariffs, seven gigawatts a year, um, that was pretty expensive. China's full subsidies here are like maybe three, four cents a kilowatt hour. And the amount of solar that they're putting in is huge relative to the global market for solar, but it's not huge relative to their installed capacity of power plants. And so the total cost of these entire solar program in China is about a 1% increase in the cost of electricity in China. Um, that number was more like 8 to 9% in Germany.
0: Well, China is going to lead the global market. India is creeping up. It's going to overtake Japan here, and the U.S. will be third. And that's basically what it's going to look like through 2022. It's going to be China, then India, then the United States.
1: Yeah, and I, I did a little bit of poking around on Arena's website, which is the International Renewable Energy Association. And just looking at how China has grown from 2009, they had 431 megawatts of solar PV. And now they have 112 gigawatts. That's in seven years. And wind has gone from 17 gigawatts to 105 gigawatts in seven years. It's massive. I mean, part of that is that um these technologies are given interconnection priority. They've also allowed generators and consumers to negotiate directly for supply rather than the get grid operators being in charge of that negotiation. But it seems like because of some of this just curtailment, you know, 13.6% curtailment for wind, that they're going to have to use what they have more efficiently. They're going to have to develop with... Um, with much more intention in China, so that um, certain regions aren't you know overflowing. And then, as Jigger said, they really have to invest in smart grid integration, technologies, storage, all these other applications to make sure all this stuff works.
0: And of course, more cute panda-shaped PV projects Aww. and floating solar projects. They they certainly lead in the novel applications too. <laughs> Let's
2: tell our listeners something they don't know. Jigger, what do you got for a story this week? So I was going to talk about um, the EIA again, my favorite. Um, (laughs) They came out with a new report showing that coal exceeds gas for total megawatt hours uh, produced this year, um, taking over first place. Um, But what they failed to mention is that coal plus gas is down by 4% compared to last year. And that, that all of that increase really came from renewable energy, which is about a... Uh, 27% increase in renewables and a 13% increase in clean energy across the board, including nuclear. And so, um, you know, the macro trends are now changing by four percentage points at a time, not one percentage point at a time like it used to. This is what I would call exponential growth.
0: And this is why... Wholesale market destruction is on its way, and why uh, the urgency identified in that DOE report probably isn't isn't enough. I mean, we're we're just at the beginning of this crazy crazy ass ride. It's nuts. Yeah, Catherine, what's your story?
1: Yeah, so this is sort of aligned with what Jigger saying is uh, XL Energy in Colorado uh, this week. Um, announced an agreement to retire two out of its three coal plants at Comanche Generating Station in Pueblo and instead add more wind, solar, and natural gas. So they're going to request competitive bids for 1,000 megawatts of wind, 700 megawatts of solar, and 700 megawatts of natural gas under this uh, Colorado energy plan. So if the commission approves that, you'll see two more coal plants shutting down.
0: And this is why, like, if you take this... DOE report, i got to keep bringing this back in, but I can't help but mention it because it kind of layers on top of everything we're talking about. You know, let's say you're an environmental group who thinks this is a worst case scenario, that this is just a way to diabolically back coal. I mean, nothing in a report like this is going to change the situation. Like, these utilities are making economic decisions today. And at a point where the administration can start making major policy shifts um, to, to perhaps backstop coal, like, the, the the train has already left the station. You know, by the time they start developing things, the the market has already changed dramatically. So, I, I, these things are just happening so fast. Um, any type of market reforms that we've been discussing in the context of of this DOE effort, I think, are not nearly enough to 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 stem the the changes that we're seeing. Um, thanks everyone for listening. I think that's going to do it for the show. Catch us on Twitter. Tell us what you think of uh, our debates here and what we discussed in the show. Send us a note at podcast at greentechmedia.com if you want to communicate with us in more detail. And uh, follow us anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher Radio, NPR One, Google Home, uh, or Google Play, I should say. We're, we're everywhere. And and also, you can get us on your uh, your Amazon Alexa device, too. We're on TuneIn, and you can get that on the Amazon Alexa. So if you just yell at your Alexa, um, tell me about wholesale markets. No, I'm just kidding. If you just say, play the energy gang, we should pop up there. And if you have any problems with that, actually just email me at podcast at greentechmedia.com and let me know. All right, Catherine, enjoy the rest of your week and weekend. We'll talk to you later.
1: Thanks, you too. Jigger.
0: Thanks. Happy for our Happy Labor Day. Thank you. Have a great extended weekend, everyone. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of GreentechMedia.com. We'll catch you next week.